Okay, this is the recording for week 12. This is our second week on uh, automation. And this week we're looking at chapters from two books that came out last year, so hot off the presses in 2020. Uh, Aaron Beninoff's Automation in the Future of Work and Smart Machines and Service Work Automation in an Age of Stagnation from, uh, by Jason Smith. And so this is also a follow-up to our class last week in which we read um, James Boggs' uh, uh, American Revolution. And already there, we saw the specter of automation, the idea uh, articulated in the 60s that um, automation in the auto plants was going to render an entire section of the population superfluous. And to some extent, um, these ideas of automation come up again and again and again. We saw them in Marx in 1857. Um, they came up in the 60s. Um, they're coming up again now, especially in the age of COVID, where the combination of uh, tech, tech, technological innovation and the rush to kind of uh, eliminate or lessen uh, interpersonal contact in the exchange of goods and services has led people to once again fear the specter of mass unemployment driven by automation. So, and in some sense, and this is a good way to begin both Beninov's and Smith's book, the fact that this specter of automation has come up so many times um, without quite delivering the mass unemployment uh, that it's supposed to offer. And that mass unemployment, we should mention, or I should mention, has both a, you know, it's dystopian and utopian versions in the sense that what some people predict is, I mean, in the sense that Marx wrote about, um, the society based upon labor um, with mass unemployment will leave huge sections of that population as kind of a surplus army of unemployed as kind of superfluous people as Boggs worried about. Um, but there's also the utopian aspect of this, that automation would, uh, if handled correctly politically and economically with some massive transformations, it could bring about a world of increased leisure um, for everyone in which the horrible jobs were done by machines. So the first thing, uh, start by talking about Beninov's book. The first thing that Beninov uh, wants to do is question whether or not what we're seeing now, and what we're seeing now is in terms of um, unemployment for one, but also uh, the where employment is available, it is increasingly in worse jobs, and whether or not this is an effect of automation. In fact, uh, I gave you a link to an article um, uh, from The Guardian um, uh, by, by Aaron Beninoff, where he talks about what he thinks we're seeing uh, versus what is we think we are seeing.
um, as he says in that article, um, our collective sense that the pace of labor-saving technological change is accelerating is an illusion. It's like the feeling you get when looking out the window of a train car as it slows down at a station. Passing cars on the other side of the track appear to be speed up. Labor-saving technological changes appears to be happening at a faster pace than before, only when viewed from across the tracks. That is from the standpoint of our ever slow-growing economies. That is the real problem, a pervasive and increasing global economic stagnation affecting industry especially that is marked by low rates of investment, low rates of economic growth, and hence low rates of job creation. Um, and part of Beninoff's attempt to explain this has to do with, um, we have to understand that what happened in the 20th century, um, and as Beninoff points out, um, we already had, and this is often what people think about when they think about automation, you know, uh, as Beninoff argues, um, the disruption brought about by, as he puts it, uh, the nitrogen revolution was more important than the silicon revolution in the sense that the disruption brought about to farming in the early part of the 20th century through the creation of industrialized fertilizers, the application of machinery, um, hybrid and uh, uh, other crops um, displaced tons of people from agriculture into industry. Um, and to some extent, you know, I mean, a lot of this automation discourse, as Beninoff calls it, is a tendency to imagine the future, as we often all do, imagine the future on the basis of the past. And what we've seen in the 20th century were technological innovations that uh, displaced huge portions of the population from first agriculture into industry and now industry into services. Um, and to what extent we're going to see the automation of services and another displacement, although that's often followed with the question of where are people supposed to go? And the first thing about that is that uh, seeing all these things as similar uh, misses out on the way in which the technological productivity of the 20th century was, according to Beninoff, fairly unique. Um, as he says, and this is on page 34 of uh, one of the chapters we read for today, Reflection on more than, than a half century of economic trends demonstrates that manufacturing was a unique engine of economic growth. Industrial production tends to be amenable to incremental increases in productivity achieved via technologies that can be repurposed across numerous lines. Industry also benefits from major economies of scale, which raise productivity levels as the volume of production increases. In fact, according to an economic regularity known as Verdun's law, the faster the rate of growth of industrial output, the faster, too, is the rate of productivity growth. 
Some commentators describe the present period as an of economic stagnation in terms of an exhaustion in the frontiers of technological advance, as if there were nothing left to invent, but it's more likely that low rates of industrial productivity growth are a result of a slower pace of industrial expansion rather than the reverse. Um, and to some extent, this is something that, that both Beninov and uh, Smith are going to talk about that if we were really on the verge of a new automation revolution that was going to bring about new uh, technologies in information processing and robotics that would take the place and displace existing jobs, what we would see is uh, companies spending a great deal of capital on uh, research and development. As uh, Beninoff says on page 40 um, of the reading, in reality, technological development is a highly resource intensive, uh, it's highly resource intensive, focusing researchers, I'm sorry, let me try that again. In reality, technological development is a highly resource, is, is highly resource intensive forcing researchers to pursue certain paths of inquiry at the expense of others. In our society, firms must focus on developing technologies that lead to profitable outcomes, turning profits off of digital services, which are mostly offered to, to end users for free online has proven elusive. Rather than focus on generating advances in artificial general intelligence, engineers at Facebook spend their time studying slot machines to figure out how to get people addicted to their website so they can keep coming back to check for notifications, post content, and view advertisements. The result is that, like all modern technologies, these digital offerings are far from socially neutral. The internet, as developed by the U.S. government and shaped by capitalist enterprises, is not the only internet that could exist. The same could be said of robotics. Um, so as he points out, technologies are, are pursued only to the point that they are profitable. Um, and this is something switching uh, to Smith, um, you know, the, the both Beninoff and Smith talk about this kind of a way we see a lot of technological innovation. We see social media, we see iPhones, we have them with us. We see apps like Uber and so on, all of which give us the impression that a lot of things are really happening fast uh, level of technological development. But as Beninoff says in that passage, um, uh, Facebook is perhaps best understood as an advertising platform. It gets advertisements to people quicker in more targeted uh, ways. And you see only the ads that are relevant to you rather than like turning on television and seeing ads that are relevant to tons of people. And there is, of course, something to that, but that's not an increase of productivity. Um, uh, because advertising can only, at the end of the day, all advertising does is takes people who have money to spend and gets them to spend it on commodity X rather than commodity Y. It doesn't increase our capacity to produce things. It just 
possibly does a better job of getting people to buy certain things rather than other things and maybe gets people to buy things they might not otherwise buy. But even that um, is an increase in consumption, not productivity. Um, so uh, the thing that both Smith and Beninoff talk about, and uh, we didn't have all the chapters of either, but it's quite striking in Smith's book. He talks about how much Apple, uh, how much money Apple spends on uh, stock buybacks. Um, this is not a page we had to read, but as he says, um, according to the Roosevelt Institute, cash-rich corporations followed suit. According, um, corporations spent $3 out of every $5 of their net profit on stock repurchases between 2015 and 2017. Some $1.1 trillion in corporate profits, with Apple leading the way, was spent on buybacks by the end of 2018. So once again, back to this point that if we were living in a new age of automation, um, we what we would see is corporations spending a lot of their profits on research and development in order to create new technologies. But the very fact that um, we uh, don't see that, uh, uh, and we instead we see corporations, including incredibly technologically advanced corporations like Apple, spending their money on buying back their stocks, um, which drive up equity shares um, re and reward existing shareholders um, uh, and distribute profits, but they are not productive reinvestments at all. Um, I mean, the other thing that, that uh, Smith talks about is, uh, and this is also in an interview that I gave you a link to, um, is that this, you know, through social media, through smartphones, etc., we see more technology that makes it look like we are living in an age of increased technological innovation. But as Smith writes um, in the interview that I gave you a link to, the smartphone stands in as the signal innovation or contrivance of, of the age, its star commodity, its sheer pervasiveness, its presence on sidewalks, in boardrooms, classrooms, or at the dinner table, confirms its status as an epochal emblem. For the most part, it simply brings together older devices, the mobile home, the personal computer, providing access to a panoply of diversions, shopping, streaming music and video, interpersonal communication by means of a single interactive screen. These apparatuses complete a confluence underway for decades now, the fusion of commerce and news, entertainment and sociality, self-stylation and civic life on a one-size-fits-all touch-sensitive LCD screen. Its users torn between these registers or performing them all at once. At a loss for bearings, their mood flickers between harmless diversion and inarticulate rage. Yet the heavy hand, the largest technologies 
companies have had in equities markets combined with the concussive force they've unleashed on leisure, consumption, personal identity, and public discourse, all already in the throes of erosion and decomposition for decades, give rise to claims for this core technology that far exceed its impact on how we shop, consume, media, or interact with friends, families, and strangers. In the workplace, these innovations promise to lead to what Paul Mason heralded as an exponential takeoff in productivity. That's precisely what has not happened. What we get instead are an increasingly tight webs of surveillance and tracing on the streets and in workplaces. So, you know, we ha- we see smartphones, but smartphones are not the massive increase in productivity. I mean, as Beninov points out at one point, you know, there's not a huge uh, the market for smartphones quickly saturates. Everyone wants one, pretty much. And although there's been a lot to kind of built in a kind of planned obsolescence and keep people buying a new one every couple of years, um, even that threatens to taper off. Um, and the same could be said for other industries that are kind of smartphone driven. Like if you think about Uber, for example, um, often heralded as being, you know, one of these innovative changes in technology, um, even though Uber hasn't registered a profit. Um, but all Uber really is doing um, is using existing technologies, cars, existing infrastructure, roads, um, and using that to really drive down the cost of labor for taxi services. I mean, to some extent, the recently passed Proposition 22 in California, which classified Uber drivers as as, uh, private contractors rather than employees, has more of an effect on Uber's uh, profitability or potential profitability and its success as a corporation than anything technological about it. Uber should really be understood not as a technological innovation, but as a strategy of wage suppression. Um, and, and similar with, with a lot of other companies that are often talked about in a sort of Silicon Valley um, sense of a radical transformation, Uber, Airbnb, etc., cetera, um, and food delivery services and so on, their real role is in figuring out ways to make labor cheap, which is very different from figuring out ways to increase productivity, right? To go back to the Uber example, with Uber on the streets, it is not that people are uh, getting anywhere faster or there's any increase in, in, in productivity. We're still using automobiles and we're still using the existing roads it is not the, you know, the sort of flying car transformation that it often makes itself out to be. Um, so uh, in part of the reading we had for today, Smith gives us an explanation of uh, what is happening. And that is uh, he turns to Marx's theory of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. Uh, As he writes on page 96, Marx's theory is abstract, but the core dynamic it describes can be quickly sketched. By definition, he argues, transforming a given labor process 
using new technologies will mean that companies will increase the amount of fixed capital they deploy relative to the amount of labor they hire. Sometimes this means these companies can produce the same output with fewer workers. Sometimes it means more output is produced with the same number of employees. In a certain cases, new technologies will make the goods and services so cheap that demand with them will, for them will skyrocket. In this case, output increases dramatically in turn, raising the demand for more labor in a given line of production, despite the introduction of labor-saving improvements in the production process. This changing capital to labor ratio is called in Marx's theory a changing composition of capital. Capital investment combines what Marx calls constant capital, plant, equipment, raw materials, software, and so on, because these costs reappear in the product and variable capital, the cost of labor power or the wage bill, the price of the worker's product that exceeds what it costs to feed, house, and educate them, as we've discussed, hence the variable character of this element of capital, Marx calls the surplus value generated by the workers. The relation of surplus value to labor costs, Marx calls the rate of exploitation. When the private sector uses investments in technology to increase the productivity of the labor that makes workers' consumption goods, the rate of exploitation increases because the real wage is lower. Right? If, it, if this cost, cost of living goes down, it's possible to pay people less and possible to rate of exploitation profit more. Um, this is how productivity increases, uh, can enlarge the labor share of the product even while lowering labor costs. Over time, this process, according to Marx, has a tendency to lower the rate of profit, which expresses the relationship between surplus value and total investment, since with less labor expended relative to, to total capital, there is less room for surplus value to be generated. So in some sense, this is another version of the moving contradiction we read about a couple weeks ago when we read Marx, that the less labor plays, less of a role labor plays in your productive process, the less there is a rate. There can be an increase in volume. You have more factories, you have more people working, but there is a decreased rate of profit. Um, and so at a certain point, that uh, decrease in the rate of profit means that it's not even worth it to open up a new factory or to build a new uh, site of production. And, you know, to some extent, you know, as I already mentioned with stock buybacks or financial services, what we see in, in recent years, and this is something both Beninov and Smith talk about and underscores their argument, what we see is an increasing tendency of those who have capital to um, either sit on it, and there are massive amounts of capital sitting in offshore accounts by corporations like Apple, etc., or to seek a better return on their investment through stock buybacks or through uh, financial services and uh, anything other than um, technological development. Um, so we don't quite have the automation-driven motor that uh, people fear or fantasize about, depending on what position you have. Um, and the threats of automation replacing workers are far from reality. Instead, we have we do have a decrease of availability of work, but it's not because of machines are replacing workers in the factories. It is because companies are not really building factories or 
instead taking their money and using it to buy back stock or to put it in financial services uh, or um, or other ways of generating income that are not based on increasing productivity. So this is what Beninoff means when he says what's really happening is not that the, the train of automation is taking off so fast. The reality is the train we're on is coming to a halt because of a decrease in productivity. Um, so I'm gonna take a break now and I wanna come back and talk a little bit about Smith's discussion of productive and unproductive labor and also give you the questions for this, this week. Okay, so picking up from, uh, we're talking about the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, um, which is uh, a tendency which, as Smith points out, is often countered by other tendencies. And one tendency is what he refers to as sweating labor. One tendency uh, to counter this is to try and increase the ability to extract more and more work from labor. And here, uh, technology is not, uh, maybe technology is a better role here in that as both Beninoff and Smith point out, that as much as it's doubtful whether or not technology has increased productivity of work, it has increased uh, surveillance at work. I mean, to go back to the example of the Uber driver, the Uber drive Uber is not an increase in productivity. It doesn't uh, above say, for example, a taxi cab. It's it's the exact same amount of productivity in terms of how much it can uh, uh, move people and how fast it can move people and so on. But what Uber has over a taxi is a one. The classification of workers as as private contractors, we don't have to pay uh, benefits and so on for those workers. But two, um, the same app which uh, matches up drivers with riders also keeps complete and utter surveillance on drivers at all time, uh, uh, ensuring that there's no uh, unnecessary downtime or anything else that would um, uh, uh, threaten the productivity or the, the amount of work you're getting from the worker. And so in some, and in many ways, I mean, going back to the smartphone is kind of this, this technology which seems like an increase in productivity, but really isn't. Um, uh, the smartphone is definitely an increase of the possibility of surveillance um, in all sorts of ways, uh, surveillance of employees, but also, you know, as everyone has seen, you know, as soon as you use a smartphone to buy something or 
use a service like Uber or anything else, you're always offered a chance to rate um, uh, uh, your experience. And so, um, and this is another point that Smith brings up too about the ATM machine, um, or ATM machines already included in it, uh, that a lot of the technologies that have come out in recent years have not so much uh, increased productivity as they've outsourced a lot of the day-to-day uh, functioning um, onto customers. I mean, because an ATM, as much as it, it, it is uh, a technological innovation, what it really does is it makes the customer uh, go through the work of specifying which account they want to deposit into, which account they want to withdraw from, and so on. It's not too different from um, the low-tech technology of fast food restaurants giving you trays and telling you to bus your own table, uh, which is another way of, to some extent, making the, the consumer do some of the work. Um, as Smith points out, the invention of ATMs and their proliferation hasn't really um, uh, eliminated the teller. It has eliminated the bank branch. It always seems like there's a new bank branch going up everywhere around uh, Portland. What it's changed is what a teller does is that now they sell credit cards and other financial services, um, and it frees them from the day-to-day -day thing of you know cashing checks and so on and so forth, which is done by the machine, but it's more accurate to say it is done by a combination of the employee and the machine. So what we increasingly see is not technology being used to increase productivity, but technology being used to reduce wages um, or shift some of uh, uh, the work onto employees. Um, and in, in light of this, Smith also talks about uh, the fact that uh, a lot of the services that have emerged are unproductive activities. Um, as he says, and this is on page 101, uh, and this is returning to this distinction that we saw in Smith and in Marx, between productive and unproductive labor. For Smith, if it doesn't produce a thing you can store, it's unproductive labor. Um, for Marx, it's really, um, and this is where uh, Smith takes off from it, it is really, the difference is not so much the production or, or non-production of things, but the production and non-production of profits. Um, and as Smith says on page 101, uh, while a masseuse working for a massage parlor, produces massages that cost more than her labor costs and hence a profit for employer. A security guard merely ensures that a certain property remains private. Both his labor and the security's firm profits are paid for out of 
profits generated at the enterprise he guards in the same way financial and retail activities are unproductive as are activities that produce goods and services but are not sold on the market, such as household production and government services. From Marx's point of view, productivity in capitalism properly refers to the production of value and surplus value and increasingly an increase in supervisory and circulation labor means a decline in the amount of labor consumed productivity and so capable of generating profits uh, for business owners. Marx's approach allows us to understand that the rising proportion of the labor force working in circulation and supervision represents an increasing cost to the system as a whole, right? I mean, elsewhere, Smith talks about, you know, the the increase in productivity and the making of air conditioners, but how um, the need of all the employees to move them and sell them is, in some sense, an additional cost. So uh, by this rationale, the, the increase of services, um, like, say, for example, security guards, um, is not an increase in productivity, right? A security guard doesn't make the company any more money um, uh, in the sense that all the security guard does is make sure that the company, you know, uh, uh, things aren't stolen and so forth, but it doesn't increase productivity. Um, in some sense, it's a cost, often a cost of, say, moving a business into a, a new area where um, you know, you're caught up in gentrifying and you're trying to expand into that area. And the same thing can be said for uh, the, the fact that so much of the explosion of technologies, uh, especially smartphone and digital tracking technologies, are more like that security guard than they are like the masseuse in the sense that they don't really increase productivity, the ability to do more of X or make more of X, all they really do is operate surveillance. And that surveillance can extract more work from workers in the sense of reducing break time and time off the clock, etc., cetera, um, uh, and run them to some extent uh, uh, ragged uh, by this increased surveillance. There's all kinds of, you know, discussions of this about how the increased surveillance, um, uh, forces workers to work at an almost unhealthy level of productivity. My favorite example of this is that, uh, you know, UPS drivers are now tracked entirely through GPS and so on. Um, and the time of each delivery is tracked. So they don't, you know, hang around and chat pe with people and so forth uh, all are seen as unproductive expenditures um, but uh, and along with that the their seatbelt is tracked and some UPS drivers feel like given they don't have a lot of time they keep their seatbelt locked behind them strapped around the seat not around them um, that satisfies the machine monitoring seatbelt use, and it also frees up those extra fraction of a second um, that it would take to click and unclick the seatbelt that makes it possible then to make their route. So that the, the, the technology that is a digital form of surveillance um, ends up 
not so much uh, liberating people from work, um, but making working conditions worse. Okay, so the two questions for this week. Um, first question is, why is general economic stagnation a better explanation of what we see now in the present in terms of reduced work, reduced uh, uh, job security and so off and so on than automation. Um, and then second question, this is more particular to Smith. How does the distinction between productive and unproductive labor help us make sense of the service economy and to some extent why the service economy um, won't be subject to the same sort of automation. Thanks.